This episode is part two of a series on the affair of the poisons. If you have not heard part one, well, I'd suggest going back and listening to that, but if you don't mind jumping in and meta arrest, go ahead and keep listening. Today's episode is based on the accounts written in The Affairs of the Poisons, Murder, Infanticide, and Satanism at the Court of Louis XIV by Anne Somerset. best conspiracies are the ones that are the biggest. I don't think a good conspiracy can be made without having somebody on top that is so fantastical that people just say, that can't be true. I think of, for example, like Lee Harvey Oswald, the one that we gave last episode. Let's say that Lee Harvey Oswald shot JFK, and that was the end. That's pretty boring, isn't it? It's the reason why people have to come up with conspiracies. It's got to be bigger. It's always got to be better. Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK because he was a sleeper agent for the Soviet Union. That's a good conspiracy. I think it's part of human nature that in order to have a good conspiracy, what's required is that something greater, something bigger beyond what would be the mundane is behind it all. But the problem is is that oftentimes we start thinking that such a conspiracy exists, but there's very little evidence to back it up. This is the problem that La Reine, the police chief in France, is dealing with in his investigations of the affair of the poisons. Thus far, many people have been implicated in this poison ring that has been selling poisons to everyday citizens to use to murder people. However, Most of the people that have been implicated are just everyday citizens, just lower and middle class, a few upper class, but he thinks it goes all the way to the top. The problem is, is that La Reine is starting to construct a story and then find evidence to support it rather than the other way around. A good investigation requires you to construct a story from the evidence, but La Reine is paranoid that this conspiracy goes to the top. And in this case, the top means the French court. On September 12th of 1679, he's given the evidence necessary to begin his investigation into some of these court members. Madame Voisson gives a testimony that has a name, the Duchess de Vivon. Now, she's a huge member of the court, but what's more worrisome is that her sister-in-law is Madame de Montespan. Montespan is the mistress of King Louis XIV. And if you want a good conspiracy, implicating the mistress of the most powerful person in France, that's about as big as you can get. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. Known as the Sun King, Louis the Great, 
He's at the height of his power in the 1670s. In fact, possibly the height of French power ever. I think you can certainly make a claim that he is the greatest monarch in France since Charlemagne the Great. I think you can also make a pretty good argument that he's better than even him. What King Louis had done during this time is mind-boggling. What he had done when he ascended to power in 1661 was he transformed France into a modern Roman Empire. At this point, France has the largest European army. It has a very powerful navy. It can rival Britain, which most historians agree is the greatest navy during this time. He had doubled the revenue from taxation and made France immensely wealthy. He was also a patron of the arts. He actually commissioned the Palace of Versailles, which was this beautiful building that you can still go to today, and it's the center of the French court. He even commissioned the Royal Academy of Sciences in Paris. King Louis is what is known as an absolute monarch. In other words, he has all the power in the entire kingdom. He can trump anybody and everybody. He's so powerful that he ends up, after building the Palace of Versailles, moving the French court there. The French court is large. The best way to put, I guess, the French court, the aristocracy, think of them as like the 1% of the 1%. In other words, the richest of the rich. And I don't even know if there's a word to describe how insanely wealthy these people had to be in order to even be at court. Because to be at court, you had to live there. And people oftentimes couldn't live there for more than a short spell here or there. It was just so expensive. But the people who did live there all the time were the richest. They wore the finest clothes. They had numerous servants. Just to give you an idea of how expensive court was, there were many people who squandered their fortunes just trying to keep up the appearances at court. Court is also a place of political intrigue. It's a place of backstabbing, plotting, all of the great marks of conspiracies. And most of this had to do with ranking. In other words, trying to get yourself to be more important than the person next to you. And in fact, to to us today in the modern world, it probably sounds petty. A lot of it comes off as petty, at least to me. Like, for example, um, one thing they would do is everyone sits down at dinner, and the king and the queen might be seated farther down the table than you. Well, the goal of being at court would be seated closer and closer and closer to the king and queen. And to be honest, this would devolve into arguments in the court. For example, you might sit down, someone might sit down next to you, and you might bring up that this person is a lower status than you. And then it becomes a squabble, and the king actually ends up intervening and having to say, uh, well, no, this person deserves to sit there or doesn't. One of my favorite stories that I read when I was coming out of this had to do with a French noblewoman who was gambling, and she got up off the table, and she went to the bathroom. And while she was at the bathroom, another French noblewoman quickly, apparently from the onlookers, basically rushed over and sat in the seat before the other person could finish their business. When the original person came back, she started up this gigantic argument about how she deserved to sit there and the other person didn't. I mean, it sounds like something out of elementary school. But that's the sort of things that were important in the court system. Now, in court, there's actually not that much to do. Plenty of gossip. But a lot of these court people had very little to do because most of the money they made was off of the land. The land was automatically taxed. 
So they didn't have jobs to have to keep up, they just got money. So as a result, they would take up hobbies. And one of the favorites of men and women was divining. They would draw horoscopes at court. They would tell fortunes. Some of them dabbled in alchemy. You might be wondering what the king thought of all this, and to be honest, he was unperturbed. It was just part of the system of being at court. Some people in court were even interested in the occult. They would go so far as to try to conjure up demons or the devil himself. Another thing that's interesting about the French court is that morality was thrown out the window, especially sexual morality. Oftentimes, wives and husbands led completely separate lives. They wouldn't be in each other's business whatsoever. Normally, in court, you would take an extra lover or a mistress. Both men and women. Women were held to, I guess, like a, a slightly higher standard, but as long as you didn't like make out with your lover at court, it was considered permissible. Homosexuality was prevalent all through the court, which is a big deal because it was illegal in France, but nobody seemed to care. And the biggest thing is that all of this is under the guise of the king, and he took it all in stride. King Louis was a very pensive king. He was very well suited to the role of being an absolute monarch. He once told his son that kingship was like, quote, keeping an eye on the whole earth, of being informed of an infinite number of things from us that we are presumed to ignore, and of seeing all around us what is hidden from us with the greatest care, of discovering the most remote ideas and the most hidden interests of our courtiers. End quote. King Louis had his eyes and ears everywhere. And being an absolute monarch, he was always afraid of losing his power, and he was paranoid. He suspected around every corner somebody wanted to assassinate him. He actually took extra measures to ensure his security. For example, most kings had food tasters at the time to wait off poisoners. He had multiple food tasters. So he'd give the food to the first food taster, and then after that he'd give it to the second one in case the first one had built like an immunity or something. He always locked off access to the woods when he would go hunting, and that meant that Nobody was allowed in. No noblemen, no commoners, and guards would be posted all around the wood to keep anybody out so that nobody could go and murder him while he was on his hunt. And it was under penalty of death, so hopefully you wouldn't get caught out there, unawares. Most everybody around him thought that this was pretty extreme, but the one place he did not apply his paranoia was the bedroom. King Louis had a voracious sexual appetite. He had multiple mistresses. Almost all women in the entire kingdom of France wanted to become his mistress because it was so prestigious. Some people would argue even more prestigious than being the queen, which, yes, he had a queen. She openly knew all of this and took it in stride. The court did too. I would say his sexual pleasures, I suppose, are his weak point. They hold a huge sway over him, and not just in the bedroom. A mistress did more than just provide sexual pleasure. They supplied conversation. They would ride horseback together. They attended court publicly together. He would build his mistress's hotels, houses, and he would supply them with all these little secret staircases and back alley roads. Now, multiple court ladies in the affair of the poisons 
are going to have been alleged to have conspired to poison the king. Marquis de Montespan is one of those. But another one is his former mistress, Louise de la Valire. And I think it's a little important to understand these women to get an idea of what's going through King Louis's mind when he finds out that allegedly his mistresses have been conspiring to poison him. Now, Marquis de Montespan and La Valliere have a lot of bad blood between them. Montespan was not beloved in court. She had a wit and a very biting sense of humor, but the nobility did not like that. It did not sit well with them at all. She was actually already married. The children she had with King Louis had to be hidden away and taken care of by a widow, Madame Scarron. Montespan was also a very bloodthirsty mistress. At one point, when she was legally separated from her husband, she had bailiffs take the bed and the furniture from where he and her legitimate children were living in order to pay off debts of her own. She also had a temper. She drank excessively, apparently. Her arguments with the king is one reason why some people argued that he eventually splits with her. She also gambled a bunch, tons of money. In one sitting, she lost 5% of the crown's annual income. For you United States citizens, that would be like Melania Trump gambling in one single sitting $164 billion. Because of all these reasons... Around Easter of 1675, the king begins to look elsewhere for a mistress. This infuriates Montespan. Her entire livelihood depends on the king. He has several suitors that come through, and she runs out all of them, but one of them sticks. Her name is Mademoiselle de Fontaine. The king takes Fontaine as his mistress, and Montespan is left hanging. Supposedly, she turns to religion. However, at least by La Voisin's suggestions, she turned to apothecary. Her intention was to poison Fontaine. And if that doesn't work, the king himself. Also interesting during this time, that Madame Scarron, the children's caretaker of Miss Montespan, had also risen in rank at this point. She actually ends up buying a chateau and gets a title of Marquis de Montenon. And as Montespan's favor diminishes, her favor grows. Eventually, the king is calling on Montenon, which is a huge blow to Montespan's reputation. So maybe you can understand at least a little bit of why people begin to suspect that maybe it is true, La Voisson's accusation. But where is she getting this from? The person that she continuously comes back to is a magician named Lesage. Supposedly, he had been hired to murder the husband of the Duchess de Vivon, the sister-in-law of Montespan. Lesage is going to become one of the major testimonies against the French court. But he's not exactly the person that you'd want to listen to because he's not very reliable. Lesage is a very famous magician in Paris. He had dabbled in the occult and in alchemy. He's actually most famous for this seance that he would put on for people to communicate with the dead. The way it would go would be like this. 
A client would show up. He would ask to communicate with a deceased loved one. And what Lesage would have them do is he'd have them write what they wanted to say onto a piece of paper, and then he would put that into a wax ball and seal it. He would take the ball and throw it into the fire, and instantaneously the ball would completely disintegrate paper and all. Then he would have the client leave. A few days later, he would bring back the paper with the writing on it. The client would be amazed, but it was all just a magic trick. What Lesage had actually done is he would swap out the wax ball for a ball of saltpeter so that that would ignite when it'd go into the fire and he'd keep the wax ball. Whatever was written on the paper would change what he would do next. If it was something that was not a big deal, maybe mundane or reasonable, he would say that those desires would be granted as long as he's paid. But let's say it was something that was compromising. Well, then he would ransom off that information back to the client. That's the kind of person Lesage was. The way he knew La Voison was that they were contacts that employed each other regularly. At one point, they were actually sexual partners. Lesage is captured by La Renie and brought back to La Voison for a confrontation. Remember, this is how La Renie would oftentimes interrogate people. He'd put them both in the room, and he would have them basically argue with each other and accuse each other of different crimes, and then he'd use that against them. So when he puts La Voisson and Lesage together for a confrontation, the exact thing that has happened multiple times in his investigation occurs, they turn on each other. Lesage brings many different accusations against La Voisson, including multiple murders by poisoning. But the difference is that Lesage starts to accuse many other conspirators. I mean, dozens. It's so many that you start to question, is he a reliable witness? One thing that strikes me as strange is that he never incriminates himself in any of these poisonings that occurred, yet he seems to know all of these different associates that poisoned people. La Voisson doesn't hold back, she implicates Lesage being involved with the Duchess de Vivon, and that's a huge deal because she's the very first person from court to be implicated, but then La Voisson throws in an extra cherry. She mentions a name, Mademoiselle de Oilette. That happened to be a sexual partner of the king himself, and also an employee of Madame de Montespan. After all of this, La Renie informs the war minister, Louvois, who in turn informs the king. On October 6th, Lesage gives another piece of damning evidence. He states that he had a meeting with the Duke de Luxembourg, which is a big deal because he's one of the greatest war heroes in France. He's currently a general. Apparently he had sat down with Lesage over drinks and had given him a paper with a list of demands that would help farther the general's career. These included the murder of a rival general and of his own wife. Now remember, Lavoisan and Lesage are under immense pressure to give information to the authorities. In Lavoisan's case, it's to delay their trial and probable execution thereafter. For Lesage, early on, La Renie does a very stupid thing. He decides to tell Lesage that if he can get enough information from him, he will be given a pardon. 
And at this point, Lesage realizes that his only way out is to give credible information. And if he runs out of information, then he's going to have to turn to making stuff up. And he's fantastic at that. And of course, for everything that Lesage says, it diminishes the role of La Voisson. And if she eventually cannot give any more good information, then she's going to be executed. So of course, she feels the need to also give information. If she runs out of information, she might start lying as well. I can't tell you what here's being said is truth or lie. I will say that some of the stuff that comes up is pretty fantastical. At one point, Lesage accuses La Voisson of using fetuses in the middle of occult rituals and things like that. But there is a little bit of this that sounds like a kernel of truth. La Voisson gives up three court women who years ago were interested in poisoning Mademoiselle de la Valliere, remember the former mistress to the king. At different times, they had approached La Voisson with the hopes of becoming mistress themselves. And in order to do that, they needed to get rid of the current mistress. During this time, she also names another major court name, the Comtesse de Soissons. She happened to be a favorite to the king in court, but he had actually had La Valliere as a mistress. If she hadn't been, there's a good chance that the Comtesse would have been his mistress. Apparently, she came to La Voisson to have her palm read in hopes that she would find love with the king. Eventually, she demanded some poison in order to kill La Valliere. La Voisson did not give it to her. But most damning, she stated that if she could not become the mistress of the king, then, quote, she would have to carry her vengeance farther and would stop at nothing, end quote. La Reine interpreted this as not just intending to murder La Valliere, but maybe the king himself. Once Lesage hears from this, he has to respond. So he gives up more information on the Duchess de Vivon, as well as other court members. Some of them wanted to murder their fellow members, others wanted to murder La Valliere. La Voisson responds by claiming that France's greatest playwright, Therese du Parc, was a murderer. Lesage responds by naming all these priests in the service as having dabbled in the occult. So, again, think of it if you were a modern inspector. You should be suspicious of how many people are all of a sudden getting thrown around between these two prime suspects. And the problem is, is at this point, he's executed or jailed so many people that he doesn't really have any of the associates that he can go to to corroborate these investigations. All through this process, the king has been privately informed by the war minister, and there's commissioners in the arsenal chamber. Remember, that's the special commission that was put up to investigate this affair of the poisons, who want to proceed with La Voisson's trial, because by this point, Lesage has been pardoned, and they believe she's given up all the useful information she had. But then, something interesting happens. The king intervenes, and puts a stop to it. He believes that she has more to tell. Meanwhile, all through 1679, the king's court has thus far been completely unaware that some of its members have been linked to the poisonings. But that changes on January 23rd, 1680. The very first arrest warrants are issued for the members of the court that have been implicated by either Lesage or La Voisson and chaos reigns. For one, everyone at court begins to gossip with one another. Most of the people believe that more arrests are going to follow, 
One ambassador noted, quote, There is great astonishment here, as everyone is linked to those accused through affection or family ties. End quote. I think the ambassador was censoring himself here because by affection, what he meant was sex, sexual relations. The discussion of divining amongst the court skyrockets. In fact, the discussions become so great that there's a play that was currently going on that coincidentally happened to be named The Divineress. And it was nearing the end of its run, and it was just a modest play. Yet every night, they were turning away up to 400 of these 1% of the 1%. It ends up becoming the most profitable play in France up to that point. Now, what about those who were being arrested? Well, one arrest was for a Comtesse de Soissons. She bolts. She actually ends up leaving the country with all of her valuables before the guards can arrive. And to be honest, it seems like the king had such an affection for her that he pretty much delayed the proceedings to arrest her to give her the chance to do so. Unfortunately for her, this is actually disastrous. To be honest... Because the king had a soft spot for her, she probably would have been acquitted had she stayed in France. Unfortunately, because she ran, she was found in contempt of court, and that is a capital offense in France. She could never return to France. She was forced to live abroad in Europe, the mark of a poisoner, always over her head, until she died. In fairness to her, she's not the only person to flee. Madame de Polignac went on the lam to escape justice, and she could never return to Paris, although she was allowed to live in France. The Marquis de Sessac was another one. He fled to England for a decade. He actually voluntarily surrendered in 1692, and he was just given a pardon right then and there. One that surprised everyone, though, was Luxembourg, the war general who was implicated by La Voisson and Lesage. He presented himself at the Bastille on the evening of January 24th, one day after the arrest warrants had been put out, and a few days later, he was approached by La Reine. Because here's the thing, Luxembourg was such a prestigious war general and hero, and so high in the court system, that La Reine had to ask him if he would be given jurisdiction over Luxembourg. He was afraid that it would turn the other way around, that Luxembourg would actually have jurisdiction over La Reine, but... Luxembourg went ahead and acquiesced and said that he would go ahead and present himself at the special council. What about the public? They're shocked. Rumors are rampant. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine if all the billionaires in the world were implicated in some vast conspiracy. Well, wouldn't you two start talking? They have these crazy rumors. Uh, Some of them, for example, state that they were making pacts with the devil. Some of them were saying that they were having, like, these ancestral relations, and then they would give, like, an occultic ritual. They talked about servants who had been murdered because they knew of the sexual encounters between court members. Here's the craziest one, in my opinion. Luxembourg, in this one rumor, had sexual relations with his sister three times, and then each time, La Voisson was on hand to abort the baby, then dried the fetuses, and used them to conjure spells. And that's the sort of crazy talk that we're talking about here. Other court members are summoned for questioning rather than arrests. And that went about as well as you'd expect of a court member being summoned. They were all very haughty, very rude, and most of them refused to answer questions. There's one, the Duchess de Boyon, And she told the crowd after her interrogation that La Reine 
had asked if she had ever seen the devil, and she responded, quote, Yes, I have seen him, and he looked just like you. End quote. The public is on the side of the court in this case, but the king and the arsenal chamber, again the name for the special counsel, are not letting any of these accusations slide. In fact, he expelled the duchess from Paris. Others who were not convicted found their lives irreparably blemished by this affair. About two dozen of these court officials are found in exile, either by deposition, which was basically a letter by the king that even the courts had no sway over, that he would send out, and basically it said something along the lines of that you are kicked out, and if you come back, we'll kill you. Or, some of them were exiled in their careers. They were never allowed to be in their service again. The attitude of the aristocracy towards the arsenal chamber only gets worse. Because the fact is that even though there's plenty of people being exiled and fleeing, none of them are being convicted. The problem is that the arsenal chamber is dealing with pretty much only the testimonies of Lesage and La Voisson. It's all hearsay evidence. It's all testimony. There's no circumstantial or forensic evidence besides it. So, time and again, these court members come to trial, and then embarrassingly, they have to be let go because of a lack of evidence. One court official said, quote, The trend today is to speak innocence of those named and of horror at the scandal. End quote. Another one stated, quote, If nothing more is discovered, people of such high rank could have been spared a great scandal. End quote. Obviously, nobody is going to be speaking out directly against the king, but the whole ordeal is a subject of ridicule in their social circles. There's plenty of jokes about poisoning, but the king does not budge. In fact, he widens the scope of the entire investigation. One person, however, that he doesn't see any more use from is La Voisson. She is convicted at her trial on February 17th, 1680. She's to be tortured for three days and then burned alive. Somewhere along the way of this investigation, she has lost her religion. When she was being taken to the burn pile, she pushed away the crucifix extended toward her, and she fought against her captors, swearing at them, kicking and screaming. In fact, as the fire began to rise, they were actually trying to basically get the burning over with and throwing straw closer to her feet so that way she could burn quicker, and she kept kicking it away and away, and so it was an excruciatingly long execution. Many of the people who are accused are expelled from Paris, or they're heavily fined. Some of them are even sent to the galleys, the galleys being the ships in the navy of France, and it was a terrible fate. Normally you'd be sent for like a period of time, but oftentimes they would, quote, lose the paperwork. And so... If you got sent to the galleys, it was pretty much a lifetime affair. A very terrible fate. But it seems that overall, the chamber was groping for evidence that could convict somebody in the king's court, and they couldn't find anything. Luxembourg was set free after six months of fruitless investigations, and he was exiled from Paris. Many of those who were expelled in later years are going to end up coming back to Paris, and they're welcomed by the king's court, because they thought that this was a kangaroo court to begin with. It is clear that the chamber's indictments, at least for the king's court, had ended in failure. It's going to be mocked by the aristocracy, 
condemned by the public, and it seems clear that soon it is going to be coming to an end. And in 1682 it does. But there's one lingering question revolving around a particular person. Madame de Montespan. Of all the people implicated in the king's court, she was the one that came up most consistently in the record of not just Lesage, but of La Voisson and other peasants, servants, associates, even Marie Montvoisson, the daughter of La Voisson. And in these accounts, multiple witnesses state n- numerous times that she'd engaged in witchcraft. She would go to diviners and want love potions, aphrodisiacs. When she could not hold on to the king's love, she decided that King Louis deserved to die, and she had turned to using poison and had put poison into the pockets of the king and onto his handkerchief, the idea being that if he put his hands on either and brought them to his face, he may be poisoned. But what does the king think about all of this? To be honest, we don't know. We can infer a little bit. But he never protested the allegations against her. And that's pretty telling, because when Mademoiselle de Oyette, one of the other ones who was his lover, had been convicted in kind of all of this investigation, he actually had protested that one. So the fact that he didn't say anything about Madame de Montespan seems to suggest that at least on some level he thought that she could do it. Throughout 1681 and into 1682, charges are brought against dozens of individuals engaged in conspiracy to poison and witchcraft, but Madame de Montespan is never charged by La Renée. Why? Apparently she had the most accusations against her, but if we're looking at this from La Renée's perspective, she's the closest person to the king. A lot of these accusations have been flimsy to begin with, with other court members, and coupled with the lack of convictions, it seems, at least to me, that La Renée did not want to tarnish his reputation any farther. She ended up remaining at court until the end of her days, and she was blissfully unaware of how close she had come to ruination. The affair of the poisons fizzled out in 1682, after becoming such a mockery in Paris. But it does leave the question, how much poisoning had occurred? In part one, we discussed the various accusations leveled, and the evidence was not just testimonial. There was good circumstantial and even forensic evidence being done. People were exhuming bodies and cutting them open and taking a look and finding that in many of these cases, yes, there had been poisoning. However, the lack of forensics and toxicological techniques that were being used to determine manner of death make it difficult to pin down how many there were. Because if you remember... This all got started because people were worried that poison was undetectable. And maybe it was. Maybe some of these bodies that they exhumed and opened up and they looked fine might have actually been poisoned, and we simply didn't know. It also doesn't help that many in the aristocracy, as well as the general public, blamed poisoning for mundane deaths. Things like gastroenteritis. They, they would even blame it on, like, upset stomachs. But if we took the numbers at face value which some historians have done, it would be well over a 1,000 people. I've seen numbers climb as high as 2,500 people, but I think it should be clear by now that the testimonies of La Voisson and Lesage and even some of the associates 
is untenable. I think the same can be said with the practicing of the occult in this area. How much of it occurred remains a mystery. Just like poisoning, it's understood that some of it went down, but it's next to impossible to say how much. And I'd say it's certainly not as much as they claim it to be. But that's part of what makes a good conspiracy, isn't it? Again, going back to part one, the best conspiracies have a kernel of truth. And I think part of this can be laid at how many people were indicted. By the end of the affair, 450 people had been implicated. 200 arrests had been made, 36 had been executed, 23 were exiled, 5 were sent to the galleys, and 55 were imprisoned directly by the king for life. And then that doesn't even include the people who died under torture or suicide. I think the best way to view the affair of the poisons is as a parable. It is a parable for what happens when investigations pursue false leads and red herrings in order to build a conspiracy case. We will never fully know how many people were poisoned in early modern Paris, but we certainly can see the effects it had on the minds of the public and the aristocracy. Let me leave you with an interesting little tidbit. Versailles did not actually have indoor plumbing or sewage. For such a beautiful structure that you can visit today, it apparently smelled horrendous. People would go to the bathroom in the corners of rooms or in stairwells. The stench would be unbearable to a modern person. As Louise de la Valliere, the mistress of the king, once said, quote, People are poisoned by the infectious air one incessantly breathes there. End quote. Perhaps she meant this in more ways than one. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It goes a long way to helping other listeners find us. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website, highcrimesandhistory.com.